Thanks, Michaela and David. G'day, everyone. Ben Gray is my name. Uh, I'm the Minister of the Church, and we're in Colossians uh, for a few more weeks. Uh, if you're reading along in the book of Genesis, like we have been uh, as a church, we're up to chapter 18, as you saw just then, and we don't have any explanation at the moment of what's been going on in the book of Genesis, and sometimes that can be a bit hard. You can get a bit lost. Uh, we were in those chapters during lockdown last year. You can go back to our YouTube or our podcast and find the sermons on the story of Abraham uh, if you want to catch up. Uh, why I mention that is that we're going to land back in Genesis in August to pick up the story uh, with Abraham's son Isaac. So uh, Genesis 25 is where we'll pick up in August. If you want to go back and catch up on some Genesis uh, you can do that from our lockdown Bible talks uh, from last year. Let's pray and then we'll, we'll get after it. We're just going to do a couple of verses in that passage tonight. Um, so let's pray and ask God to help us. Our Father, we thank you so much for the Lord Jesus and the way in which this letter of Colossians points us to him with such beauty and majesty we thank you that Jesus is Lord of the heavens as well as Lord of the home and we pray that as we think about how his lordship shapes our relationships that you would be with us tonight, uh, give us grace to hear your word rightly, to forget anything that's wrong and we pray that you would help us to not only put this into practice in our own lives, in our marriages, but to be the kind of church where we encourage one another in this area and build each other up in love. And we ask that you would do this amongst us tonight for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, uh, t twice in this past week I met with people in the midst of very distressing personal circumstances. And... Uh, the challenge of that, I found, was that there was no immediate answer or resolution to what they were going through. And so when you're there to be a listening ear and to offer some kind of helpful advice or whatever, and you know there's no short kind of term resolution, there's no easy answer, there's no quick fix, there's no silver bullet, uh, it can be hard to know what to say. When the hole seems so deep, when the Immovable obstacles seem so big, what do you say? And in both instances, we talked about the Jesus of history and the Jesus of the Bible that we see in the book of Colossians, his bigness, his majesty. And in the midst of those conversations, as we reflected on Jesus as Saviour and King, who is celebrated and proclaimed in this letter there was recognisable relief on their faces. Nothing had changed about their circumstances, but lots had changed in terms of their perspective on those circumstances. That Jesus is the all-supreme Lord and all-sufficient Saviour for anyone who would entrust their life, their death, their eternity into his safe hands, that brings relief, that brings perspective, not in a sense that it, it trivialises your circumstances, but in the sense that he speaks into those circumstances and he comes close to you in those circumstances. 
For both those people, decisions still needed to be made, plans still needed to be established, responsibility still needed to be taken, help needed to be sought. But they could do that in trusting it all to Jesus, knowing that he's not indifferent to their circumstances, knowing that his sovereign rule and his saving power were not distant or absent in those circumstances, but very personally directed toward them in his love. Because Jesus, the all-supreme Lord and the all-sufficient Saviour, he is in charge not just of the cosmos, but he's in charge of your everyday life. His rule and his reign, his love and his redemption reaches as far as the cosmos and as close as the couch. He is the Lord of the heavens as well as the home. He is majestic in his power and in his glory. And that's true even in the mundane, very ordinary, everyday aspects of our life. And that's what's on view for us today in Colossians 3. Uh, We're in the section of the letter where God's people are receiving kind of the instructions about everyday life, the substance of what the Christian life is to look like, how it is that you live out that majestic reality of Jesus being the all-supreme Lord and the all-sufficient Saviour. How does that rubber hit the road in everyday life and relationships? And all of that flows out of the new identity and the amazing reality that Christians enjoy. All of this is about what it looks like to be an adopted child and a forgiven sinner. And so we see in chapter 3, verse 12, flick your eyes up to there, chapter 3, verse 12, this is who Paul's talking to, Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience, right? That is the outworking of this new reality, this given identity as God's holy, God's chosen, God's dearly loved children. And what flows out of that identity and that reality are lives of mutual love and commitment. A love and a commitment that reflects God's character and reflects the shape of Jesus' own sacrificial love. That's what's meant to be played out in the lives of his people. And so where we're at today is we're thinking about how that reality, how mutual love and commitment that reflects God's character and Jesus' sacrificial love, how does that play out, particularly in the marriage relationship? Uh, Just this morning I was thinking, wow, I'm really working hard to try to get all of these relationships, husbands and wives and children and parents and slaves and masters and where does that fit with work and everything into this one sermon. So you'll be pleased to know I left half my sermon on my desk and we'll do that next week. We're just going to talk about husbands and wives tonight, if that's okay by you. And if it's not okay, that's what we're going to do anyway. Okay, so we're thinking about the shape of that for husbands and wives in particular. Kevin Van Hooser, the theologian, in his book, The Drama of Doctrine, writes this about our Christian lives. He says, we are but actors. We've received a divine casting call. Our identity has been fundamentally determined, not by social construction, but by the creative and the redemptive activity of God. 
It's the producer's call, as in it's God's call on our lives. Our task is simply to respond. Respond to his call as embodied creatures to play our part as best we can, all to God's glory. And that's what we're wanting to think about, particularly the call on husbands and wives and how they live out the gospel of the Lord Jesus together. And so as the Apostle Paul then comes to these short but impactful verses, speaking into these important relationships, it's interesting that he, in each of those relationships, husbands and wives, children and parents, slaves and masters, he's talking about relationships that have a very significant power imbalance oftentimes. And so he's speaking into relationships where there is potential um, room for abuse and misuse of power. And it's striking and it's revolutionary and it's countercultural that one of the, the, the chief things Paul does in this section is to address those with the, the power, even the, the, the real uh, inherited power in relationships, whether it's perceived or actual, and he tells them to make sure that they check their power at the door. That, or that rather they use their power for the good of the other person in that relationship. Extremely countercultural, particularly for the first century world. And we can think about that, the fact that these verses reflect very countercultural and sharp uh, kind of feelings when they land for us. And sometimes we can think that when we're sitting here 2,000 years later, they're particularly sharp and they're particularly countercultural. When the reality is there's never been a culture where these verses haven't been sharp. There's never been a culture where this hasn't reflected the countercultural um, upside down view of how the world does relationships. Jesus as Lord and the new life that he gives, it just, it just does change everything. And it always has for those who would entrust their life, death and eternity to him. Jesus always flips the script in every time and place on how we do relationships. So we can't sit here thinking that we're somehow unique and find these verses countercultural or particularly sharp. That's always been the case wherever this letter has been read since the very beginning. The second observation to make about this whole section is the way in which the Lordship of Jesus shapes everything and that the gospel of his saving love is the controlling and the motivating and the defining feature of all these relationships. Did you pick that up? Verse 18, as is fitting in the Lord. Verse 20, this pleases the Lord. Verse 22, reverence in the Lord. Verse 24, as an inheritance from the Lord. Verse 1 of chapter 4, you have a master in heaven. All of this is about the Lordship of Jesus shaping and impacting and motivating and defining relationships. Jesus and his character and his commands and his revealed word and will for his people, that is the test, that's the measure of what is good and what is not good, of what is appropriate and what is not appropriate, of what is sinful and what is not sinful. And so all of this is about <clears throat> measuring our lives and defining our lives and lining them up with Jesus and his lordship and the message of his saving love for us at the cross. 
All of that's by way of introduction as we then land at verse 18 and verse 19 with Paul's instructions for wives and for husbands. Have a look there again. Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. And husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. These are very consistent words to Christians, to Christian husbands and wives all throughout the New Testament. This is the consistent message that is to reflect God's good design and God's good desire for the flourishing of men and women in marriage. This is a picture of that, uh, <clears throat> that marriage relationship that Jesus affirmed as beautiful and life-giving when lived out from the vantage point of dependence upon God and when a husband and a wife both have their eyes fixed on the cross of the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the great joys I have as a minister is to conduct weddings, uh, often in this building, and reading out the explanation of marriage that by law I have to read out at the beginning of every wedding that I conduct. And I love that the Attorney General tells me that I have to do that. Because it's a beautiful thing. Thankfully, I don't have to talk about the Attorney General when I do it. And I got to do that at a bunch of your weddings. It's a great joy and privilege of my life. And hopefully this is a reminder for you. This is what I say. That our Lord Jesus Christ said of marriage, that from the beginning of creation, God made the male and female. And for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one. And what therefore God has joined together, let no one separate. Marriage is the symbol of God's unending love for his people and of the union between Christ and his church. So the Apostle Paul teaches that the husband must love his wife as Christ loved the church and that the wife must give due honour to her husband. It's beautiful. It's intimate. It's a union of a man and a woman for life, two becoming one flesh under God as a picture of Christ's love for his church. And from the very beginning, this is what God has built into his good creation of how he made the world. Marriage is meant to be that loving, intimate, one flesh union of a man and a woman for life. And that union is a union of two equal people. We've got to be crystal clear on that. A marriage is a union between two equal people, a loving union of equals. But thankfully, equality doesn't mean sameness. Sarah and I, Sarah's my wife, we are completely equal. We're both made in the image of God. We're both given equal dignity and value in the Lord Jesus. We're both equally co-heirs together of God's eternal kingdom. We are both equally heirs of all that Jesus will inherit in the kingdom of God. And that equality is the bedrock of our marriage. But equality doesn't mean sameness. And I'm very thankful that we're not the same. Because it's our complementary differences 
where the beauty and the unity is to be found. Those complementary differences come from our biology, from how we've been made by God as a man and a woman. And those complementary differences are what is meant to make marriage, marriage. They're coming together of two different individuals, a male and a female, for life. Joined by God, built on his promises, his good design and his good desire for his people. And those complementary differences that make marriage, marriage, they're played out not just in the biology, right, but in the responsibilities that husbands and wives are meant to take. And what that looks like when you think about what the different responsibilities that husbands and wives have in marriage, well, that's going to look nuanced and different for every marriage. Whenever we get to these sorts of verses, what people attempted to immediately do is want to draw up a table of jobs that have to be done and say, who does what jobs? Who carries what load? Who kills the spiders? Right? And that's an important discussion to have, particularly as household chores and domestic labour tends to fall very lopsidedly in marriages. But there are much, it's much more nuanced for every marriage. The, the difficulty of kind of wanting to break it up in terms of jobs and lists and household chores is that's going to look different depending on the people, right? Depending on their personalities, depending on their skills and their experience, depending on their health and their mental health, depending on the jobs that they're doing, the stage of life that they are, whether there's little kids involved. There are so many factors that, that nuance and change that that it's not helpful to get too, prescri too prescriptive on the kinds of jobs and lists. And anyway, who wants their marriage to be boiled down to a to-do list? You need to work that out and I'm happy to help you work that out if that would be a helpful discussion for me to be involved in with you. But marriage is much bigger than that. And thankfully much more beautiful than that. And even more thankfully even more intimate than that. In verse 18, Paul says of Christian wives that they are to submit themselves to their husband and that is fitting in the Lord. And when he does, when he says that, he's appealing to very free and very responsible people. Remember that when Paul gets to this section, chapter 2 and chapter 3 are still very much in play. He hasn't forgotten what he's written before. And he's not saying, you know, I know I've written all about the freedom and fullness that Jesus brings, but put that aside for a second and let's talk about reality. He's, uh, in, he's saying here, because of the freedom and fullness that Jesus brings, this is how your relationships ought to look, as free and full people in Christ, right? He hasn't forgotten about the death and resurrection of Jesus, breaking down barriers and uniting men and women together in the church. This verse addressed to Christian wives is speaking to very free, very responsible very loved people. 
and is a kind of command in the Bible that can only be accepted and applied voluntarily within a wife's own marriage relationship. It's directed to wives, right? The verse and the Bible never says, husbands, subjugate your wife. That would be awful. Rather, the call is for a wife to joyfully and voluntarily submit to her husband, whereby she seeks to honour him and encourage him and build up in him the responsibility that God has given him as the husband. And the responsibility that she is to encourage and build up in him is the responsibility that he has to lay down his life in sacrificial love and service of his wife. That his responsibility to promote her flourishing, his responsibility to promote her growth in godliness, his responsibility to nurture and to care for her, When we get to verses that say things like this, wives, submit yourselves to your husbands, we instantly feel like it's loaded and it's confusing. And that's totally understandable, partly because too many times throughout history, usually men have weaponized these kinds of verses to control people and to manipulate people. And to horrendously abuse people. But also we get to these verses and feel like they're loaded and confusing because sometimes we approach them thinking about other spheres of life that really have nothing to say about this reality. Because when you think about it, the Bible also tells us to submit ourselves to our governments. And hopefully when you then think about submitting to government and what submission in marriage looks like, that you're not thinking that marriage looks anything like government compliance. Right? That'll be a very boring application. And if it doesn't look like government compliance, it also doesn't look like the kind of submission that you see in the military where people are told to to obey the commands of their commanding officer. That submission in your marriage doesn't look like taking and giving commands. And most especially, this kind of submission doesn't look like the kind of submission they talk about in mixed martial arts. That has to do with strength and power being used for dominance and control. That has no place anywhere near a marriage. One writer has said that the Bible's picture of a husband and a wife is meant to be the beauty of a waltz, not the order of a military march. And yet the picture we're given in the Bible is even more beautiful and more intimate and more organic than that. When the first marriage is on view as Jesus refers to it, and as we read in the book of Genesis, when man and woman are brought together as husband and wife for the very first time, the man sings, his heart explodes as he sees the perfect counterpart for the fruitful and flourishing project of humanity that God has created for them to enjoy under his loving rule. 
And he says, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. He delights in the unity of their one flesh, complementary man and woman marriage because of the, the freedom and the flourishing that it's going to enable them together, which of course will be broken and spoiled by their sinful rebellion against God. But the picture we're given is that this one flesh union, this unity in diversity, it's meant to be so much more than just a waltz, as lovely as that is. It's the harmonious coming together and working together and flourishing together of one man and one woman for life. In other places, the Bible uses the analogy of a head and a body in talking about husbands and wives. You don't get much more united than that, do you? A head and a body working together, flourishing together, growing together. As you think about that organic and intimate picture of a head and a body, it's why pictures of domineering or control can have no place and don't belong anywhere near a Christian marriage. It's a picture of organic and harmonious working together where a Christian wife seeks to value and honour her husband in order that they might fulfil their relationship together. That's what submission's all about. It's not servitude. It's not passivity. It's not discouragement and antagonism. It's about the valuing and the honouring of your husband, being supportive and responsive to him. But if submission's all about being supportive and responsive to your husband, the question is, what are you being supportive and responsive to? What is it that you're responding to? What is it that you're receiving? What is it that you're being supportive of? Because all too often that's what makes submission in marriage controversial and difficult. So often it's not the unwillingness of the Christian wife to do her part, but it's the unwillingness of the Christian husband to do his part. As she's called to be supportive and responsive to him, she's meant to be supportive and responsive of him going first. At what? It's about him going first at self-sacrifice. That's what she's meant to be supportive of. That's what she's meant to be responsive to. But I know from first-hand experience that all too often we husbands don't go first at self-sacrifice. But we're very good at going first at self-serving. And that makes it harder for our wives to respond to and support. And we're reminded again and again and again that that's our responsibility in loving our wives, is to go first at self-sacrifice. To go first at giving ourselves up. As one friend said to me this week, all too often the call to lovingly lead gets twisted by a man's desire to control others for their own gain, to 
control others for their own recognition, to control others to satisfy their own need for self-promotion and self-realisation. And see, the problem with that kind of soil, the soil of self-service instead of self-sacrifice, the soil of self-promotion and self-gain rather than self-giving, the problem with that kind of soil in a marriage is that all too often it's in that kind of soil of self-service that the scourge of domestic violence grows and festers. When the servant love of Jesus and his kingdom is twisted to become the selfish love and the pursuit of being in charge. Yesterday, uh, in the Australian newspaper, Justice Judith Kelly of the Northern Territory Supreme Court was writing about that epidemic of violence against women in this country and urged the, and the urgent need for violence against women not to be tolerated or excused. Should be an uncontroversial urge, right? To not tolerate or excuse violence against women. This is what Justice Kelly wrote yesterday. The cultural component of the tolerance for violence and the prioritising of the rights and the interests of men and male offenders over women and women victims, well, that's not something that our wider society can, be, can deal with, but that is something that has to come from within, right? She's saying that there's a responsibility in each person to deal with that. We can't just look to societal structures to fix this problem because it's a problem of character, it's a problem of the heart, it's a problem of desire, it's a problem of selfishness. And while Justice Kelly helpfully, I think, points out that it's a personal responsibility, I think we would want to say that we don't solve that by simply looking within, we solve that by looking to the Lord Jesus. That crucifying yourself and your self-interest, it doesn't come from the ecosystem of individualism that our culture lives on. No, we need the spirit of the risen Jesus to unite us to him and to his sacrificial love in order that the same kind of self-sacrificial love that unites us to Jesus might also be the unifying love of our marriages. That would be fitting in the Lord. And if you were thinking, okay, what does that selfless, self-sacrificial kind of non-harsh love shaped like Jesus, what does that actually look like in a marriage? We don't have to go very far. Just look up at verse 12 again. Right? Clothe yourselves with compassion and kindness, with humility, gentleness and patience. If that was the kind of love that husbands demonstrated and modelled and, and gave themselves to in their marriages, well, that would do wonders for our church, for our society, for our world. The problem is, we might balk at that definition of love is because it, it might not feel masculine enough. It might feel a little bit too weak. Because we have warped senses of what 
femininity and masculinity actually mean? Maybe we balk at that definition of love because it feels weak, but maybe that's the point. Maybe it's the way of weakness because that's the way of the cross. Where God's power is made perfect in weakness. One of the most helpful books I've read in recent years has been Russell Moore's A Storm-Tossed Family. It's rich, it's really helpful. If you're planning to get married at any point in your life, it's worth reading. If you have been married, if you are married, it's worth reading. If you're a person who values other people's marriages and family life, it's worth reading. It's worth reading. The Storm-Tossed Family. This quote's up on the screen. He says this, A husband's headship is not, woman, get me my chips, nor is it in a more sanctified version, blessed wife, please get me my chips and then let's pray. In fact, it's the exact reverse of that. Headship is about crucifying power and privilege in order to love one's wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendour, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. How does Christ love and lead his church in these ways? He does so by laying down his own life to the point of crucifixion. A husband's leadership is about a special accountability for sabotaging his own wants and appetites with a forward-looking plan for the best interests of his wife and children. Headship is not about having one's laundry washed or one's meals cooked or one's sexual drives met, but rather about constantly evaluating how to step up first to lay one's life down for one's family. Headship will not seem often to the outside world to be being the head of one's house at all. Headship will look, in many cases, like weakness. So does the cross. And husbands, that kind of love is what is commanded of you in your marriage. Someone in my growth group on Wednesday night said, the fact that that kind of love is commanded of you in your marriage suggests that it's probably not something that you're going to fall into and out of. That it's not something that's primarily about the driving force of your emotions, but the decision of your will. Making the active decision to respond to God's command and to love your wife as Christ loved the church and sabotage your own wants and desires for her sake. And so, brothers... If you feel like your feelings aren't really in that place, you need to take your feelings in hand and lead them by your decision-making will and by the word of the Lord Jesus who commands you in this area to love your wife, to sabotage your own wants and desires and to lay your life down for your wife. And any husband who thinks that he does that with a fist, with a strong arm, 
with a temper and a controlling posture of dominance. He is closer to the world of the demonic than he is to the world of the cross. We are desperate for this church and belonging here to be the kind of church and the kind of family where people know that any kind of abusive behaviour, any kind of violence, particularly against women or anyone who's vulnerable, will not be excused and will not be tolerated, will not be ignored. One of the great encouragements for me last year was seeing some of our youth leaders put themselves through the No Domestic Abuse Safe Ministry course. You can do that too. It's on the Safe Ministry website. In order that we might be a church full of people who know what domestic abuse looks like, and what it doesn't look like, what the signs to look out for are, and how you can help people. So that at any point, if there's someone in our midst who feels threatened or they're in danger or they've been a victim of abuse or they are currently in an unsafe relationship, that there'll be dozens and dozens of people who can help them, who will listen, who will believe, who will keep them safe and get them help. In our bathrooms and up the back of the church is the no domestic abuse information that helps you think about the relationships that you might be in. It places front and centre the phone numbers to call to get help, the resources available, that there are people available all the time who will believe you, who will listen, who will act and will keep you safe and get you help. And those people are not only on the other end of the phone line but they're in this room as well and we also want to be a church where we're not just responding to bad situations and dealing with sin and brokenness but we're building into our relationships health and vitality through the life-giving message of the Lord Jesus and his death and resurrection So if you're married, if you're engaged, why not come to the Building Safe and Strong Marriages course? Five Mondays in August, two Saturdays in September, either or. To stop, take time out to think about what marriage is and what it's not. To think about yourselves and your history and your personalities. Get on the same page and to build into such a significant relationship. But you might be sitting here thinking, well, none of these categories apply to me. What am I meant to do with this? When we gather for weddings in this building, when couples stand up here and they make promises about their life and about their marriage, they do so not in front of a crowd or an audience. They do so in front of witnesses and a congregation. The point of that is that marriage is a very public thing. It's the business of the whole church. 
that marriages with public promises as their foundation mean that there is a, wit there is a congregation of witnesses who are meant to hold you accountable and encourage you and support you in your marriage. And all of us have that job of valuing, of upholding, of encouraging and strengthening Christian marriages that reflect the gospel and point people to Jesus and also provide life-giving, flourishing families in which children can be born and nurtured and brought up in the love of the Lord. Marriage is so much more than just about a couple, it's about the gospel. And so marriage is the business of all of us because we care about Jesus and we care about his people. Glad I left half the sermon on my desk. I'm going to pray. I'm going to give thanks for this beautiful picture of the gospel that we have in marriage. And I think rightly and appropriately we'll pray for victims and survivors of family and domestic violence as well. So let's bow our heads and pray. Our Heavenly Father, we stand amazed and humbled by your faithful and sacrificial love for us in the Lord Jesus. And we long for marriages and family life that reflect your love and present to our world the hope of the gospel. Please allow our marriages to be safe havens for men and women to flourish and to grow. Thank you that you are the Father of all mercies and the God of all comfort. So we pray especially for the victims and survivors of abuse within our church, our wider churches and in communities across this country. Have compassion upon all who have suffered the injustice, the humiliation and the pain of abuse, whether it's physical, emotional, sexual, spiritual, and all other forms of sinful conduct. In the midst of those distressing circumstances, give them courage to speak. May your perfect love drive out fear and anxiety. In your mercy, create opportunities, particularly for women and children, but also for men, to share their pain, reveal their struggles, and expose the hurtful actions of others and even the hurtful actions of their own lives. Give grace, sensitivity and wisdom to all who minister to the victims and survivors of family and domestic abuse. Strengthen them and their carers with the certainty of your love. Gracious God, please allow our marriages to dramatically and joyfully present our world a non-anxious, peace-promoting presence that not only builds us up in your most holy love, but also draws others towards and not away from the Lord Jesus, that you may be glorified, that Jesus might be honoured in our hearts and in our homes. And we humbly plead these things, giving thanks to you in the name of our Saviour Jesus Christ, who died and rose and now sits at your right hand in glory. We commit this to you in his name. Amen.